Jeremiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holiness to the Lord, the first fruits of his increase. All that devour him will offend. Disaster will come upon them, says the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what injustice have your fathers found in me that they have gone far from me, have followed idols and have become idolaters? Neither did they say, where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and the shadow of death, through a land that no one crossed and where no one dwelt. I brought you into a bountiful country to eat its fruit and its goodness. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination the priests did not say, where's the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. Therefore, I will yet bring charges against you, says the Lord. And against your children's children, I will bring charges for pass beyond the coasts of Cyprus and see, send to Kedar and consider diligently and see if there's been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this and be terribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Is Israel a servant? Is he a home-born slave? Why is he plundered? The young lions roared at him and growled. They made his land waste. His cities are burned without inhabitant. Also, the peoples of Noph and Taphanes have broken the crown of your head. Have you not brought this on yourself and that you have forsaken the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now, why take the road to Egypt or drink the waters of Sihor? Or why take the road to Assyria to drink the waters of the river? Your own wickedness will correct you. And your backslidings will rebuke you now. Know, therefore, and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord, your God. And the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord God of hosts. This is Jeremiah's first outing at preaching. Now, I remember the first time. I ever preached in a public setting. I was very young. David Rosales was the pastor of Calvary in Ontario, and he was going to be traveling, and he invited me to speak on a Wednesday service. And it was terrifying. 
Some of you probably know the statistics that 90% of people would rather die than have to speak publicly. Imagine you're given the choice. Hey, what would you rather do? Give a public presentation tonight or die? I choose death. I can't even remember what I said. Warren Wearsby quoted a seasoned preacher. He said, when you're young in ministry, you can't understand why more people don't want to come and hear you. And when you're older, you're amazed that anyone would want to come and hear you. I guess I'm old. The young Jeremiah begins his preaching ministry with a message. And the message combines courage and compassion and conviction. Jeremiah will obey the Lord. And remember what we've already seen as we've looked at the opening chapter of Jeremiah. Remember, Jeremiah is basically asked three things. Go where I tell you to go. Say what I tell you to say. And don't be afraid. Jeremiah will do exactly that. He will go where the Lord tells him to go. He will say what the Lord tells him to say. And he'll do it with boldness. Jeremiah will expose the sins of the people and then he will beg them and plead with them. He will say, I need you to understand that you can trust the Lord. Turn from your sin. Turn to the Lord. Jeremiah will return to these familiar themes over and over again. Rebellion, repentance, righteousness, retribution. And so the sermon or proclamation begins in chapter 2. It continues throughout the chapter, goes all the way to chapter 3, verse 5. It begins with a parable in verses 1, 2, and 3, in which God likens the people of Israel to a new bride when a couple begins their marriage and where a wife is anxious to please her husband and then something, something goes wrong. Something goes terribly wrong. Young love turns to betrayal and unfaithfulness. The perfect marriage turns out to be a perversion. And Jeremiah will continue with a, a description of Israel's sins and the depths of those sins. In Jeremiah's first message, he will liken the people's commitment to the Lord like a failed relationship, like a failed marriage in verses 1 through 12. He will list two grave sins that cause the breakup in verses 13 through 19. The people of Israel were guilty of both spiritual and sexual adultery in verses 20 through 28. The children of Israel failed to respond to God's warning. Repeatedly they will be warned. Repeatedly they will be disciplined. God will repeatedly bring correction in verses 29 through 37. And then he will present to them the need to repent in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And so in this second chapter, Jeremiah likens Israel to many things. He will use metaphors. He will use pictures. He will use images to try and reach down into the people's hearts 
and give a description of what's going on. He will liken Israel to an unfaithful spouse in verses 1 through 8. Broken cisterns in verses 9 through 13. A runaway slave in verses 14 through 19. And then Jeremiah will use the picture of a stubborn animal in verse 20. A fruitless vine in verse 21. A defiled body in verse 22. An animal in the desert in verses 23 through 25. A disgraced thief who's caught red-handed in verses 26 through 28. Incorrigible children, verses 19 through 35. Prisoners of war, verses 36 and 37. And so what is to become of Judah? What's going to happen to this country? What's going to happen? Is there any way out? Is there any hope? Is there any way that Judah can escape the coming wrath and the coming judgment that's going to come on the nation? And that's what's happening. This is going to provide the theme of Jeremiah's message. Now, remember, taken in isolation, this all sounds very, very bleak. The contrast is going to be between a faithless people and a faithful God. By the way, if we were to summarize the message in a single sentence, it would probably be verse 19. Look what it says again. Your own wickedness will correct you. Your backslidings will rebuke you. Know, therefore, and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God. That's the whole point. Unless we can see and feel in our very fiber of being the wickedness of sin. The foolishness of forsaking the true and the living God. It's going to be very, very difficult for us to appreciate Jeremiah's call to repentance in the chapter that follows. And so for each and every one of us, this is where we begin as we listen to Jeremiah's message. We understand that it has a historical context and we understand the judgment that's going to be coming. But sometimes we don't want to hear it. In relationship to our own life. As a matter of fact, it should prompt a different kind of question. How would you characterize your friendship with the Lord? How would you characterize your relationship with the Lord? Non-existent? Strained? Cold? Hot? Intimate? Estranged? Do you believe in God, but ignore him or neglect him? How would you describe your friendship and your relationship with the Lord? How would you describe the time that you spend in prayer and in fellowship and in reading your Bible? How would you describe your life in relationship to how God speaks to you and how you respond in obedience, how you are living a life of separation or sin, how you are breaking God's commands or engaging in wicked or unrighteous behavior. 
I want to remind you that Jeremiah seems to have preached this message before the discovery of the book of the law and the restoration in the temple, which takes place in the 18th year of Josiah's reign. And we find out that in Second Chronicles chapter 34, verse 8. So I'm going to suggest to you that in part, this message is given before they discover the scrolls in the temple and they begin to read aloud the word of the Lord and respond to it. So why is this message so important? The reason why it becomes important is because the same reason why it's important when Jeremiah gave it. The children of Israel and the people of Judah were called into a friendship and a relationship with God. They were called into a covenant relationship. We were made to know and glorify God. The ancient reformers were correct when they wrote that the chief aim of man is to know God and to glorify him forever. And so in the bombardment of messages that are coming all around you, it's sometimes hard to listen and remember, why do I exist? I exist to have a friendship and a relationship with God. I exist to know him and to be known by him, to love him and to be loved by him. And so Jeremiah brings up the awkward question. Then why is our relationship so bad? Why have you forsaken the Lord? You'll remember in the New Testament that Jesus gives a message and most of the people abandon him. And he turns to his disciples and he says, will you leave me too?" And Peter's response was. In John chapter six, verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. For those of you who have experienced a right relationship with God in Christ, for those of you who have left darkness and entered into light, for those of you who have experienced the joy of forgiveness and the celebration of redemption, for those of you who have been forgiven of your sins and reconciled to the Father and been given not only the hope of eternal life, but the reality, the present reality that you're going to heaven and you're not going to hell. You understand how that honeymoon began. Do you remember when you first accepted Jesus and your heart was filled with joy? There was a sense of, of cleansing and and overwhelming sense of gratitude. And so Jeremiah begins his message in chapter two, verse one, he says, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me. It doesn't tell us how it came. It doesn't say if it was a supernatural vision. It doesn't say if it was a prompting in the heart. It doesn't say if it was a keen impression. Just simply that the word of the Lord. And remember, look what it says. It's not the words of the Lord. It's the word of the Lord. Why is that an important differentiation? Because I'm going to suggest to you that the word of the Lord is the express communication of God. That the word of the Lord is God's message and obviously the ultimate message finds itself in the manifestation of the person of Jesus Christ and that's why in John chapter 1 verse 1 Jesus is called the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word was made flesh the idea being that God was interested in speaking and he speaks to us in the person of Jesus 
And in verse 2, Jeremiah hears the message of God. And and part of that message includes, look at verse 2, go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. So he tells them to go to a place, a place where everyone can hear him. Is this the gate of Jerusalem? Is this in the temple courtyard? Is this even in his house? We're not told. Is it possible that he goes to all of those places? He begins in his home. He goes to the gate. He goes to the temple. But he begins and he tells the message and he tells it over and over again. And the Lord describes the devotion of the people in a kind of honeymoon and the word translated I remember you, the kindness of your youth. It's that Hebrew word chesed or chesed. It's a word that speaks of God's loving kindness. Typically, when it's used in relationship to the Lord, it speaks of God's faithfulness, his commitment to a covenant, its fidelity, honor, affection. And here he's talking about it in relationship to Israel, the kindness, the hesed of your youth. And there was this this period of time when when God revealed himself. Remember, he reveals himself to Moses. Moses performs by the power of God, the, the, the series of plagues that liberate them from Egypt. You remember the whole story of the parting of the Red Sea, of how they walk through the Red Sea and how they wander in the wilderness and how a provision is made for them. And those of you who are familiar with the Bible remember their inconsistency and you remember their infidelity and you remember their complaining. But there were good times. There were good times. Just like in a real marriage. Remember, in a real marriage, it typically doesn't start and then continue with bad times. And he says, the love of your betrothal. The relationship wasn't simply a technical relationship. It wasn't simply a cultural relationship. It wasn't simply a ritualistic relationship. This is something that's deeply personal. That's the point. Well, you know, this was the religion I grew up in. No, this isn't about growing up in a religion. This is about a friendship and a fellowship that is deeply, deeply personal. And then the Lord says in verse 3, Israel was holiness to the Lord. The first fruits of his increase, all that devour him will offend. Disaster will come upon them, says the Lord. In order to understand that passage, remember the word holiness speaks of separateness and exclusivity. Israel was holiness to the Lord. The idea being she had no other lovers. She had no other suitors. She was exclusively, exclusively for the Lord God. And so here it doesn't mean perfect and it certainly doesn't mean free from any kind of stain. What it meant was there was this singular devotion on the part of Israel to the true and living God. 
And it should become a type and a picture of a singular devotion that you experienced early on when you received Christ as your Lord and your Savior. Gratitude wells up inside of you and you go, I don't I don't want anyone else and I don't need anyone else and I don't think about anyone else. I'm so grateful. I'm grateful. I'm grateful to what God has done. And the early days were like the first fruits of the harvest. Remember, the first fruits of the harvest was the portion that was dedicated to the Lord, the portion that couldn't be touched. And it couldn't be used by a stranger. In other words, when, and when, the, when the festival of first fruits would come up, they would set aside a portion for the Lord. And why is that important? Because with the, with the income of the harvest and the first fruit, you know what else? There was the promise of more fruit. That's the idea. You mean this is just the beginning? Yes, this is just the beginning. You mean there's going to be more days of harvest? Oh, yes. You mean there's going to be a, a greater and a greater provision? Oh, yes. The first fruits were dedicated with great respect and reverence to the Lord in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 10 through 14. And again, do you remember when you first became a Christian and the Lord said, I need this from you? It's fine. I want that. No problem. Hey, I wonder if you'll set aside some time for me. No problem. Hey, I wonder if you'll set aside some of your income for me. No problem. Remember that the first fruits were set aside for the priest and his family. And other people who ate the first fruits were guilty of trespass. And so when you live a life of holiness and separation, there is this strangeness that begins to take place. And, and again, part of the point that I think is being made in this honeymoon expression, it is, hey, do you remember what it was like? How intoxicating, how liberating, how, how incredible it was. I <laughs> All the world, said the Quaker to his wife, is queer, except me and thee. And even thee is a little queer. Now, remember, this word queer used by the Quakers doesn't necessarily mean what it means today. In the Quaker world, it was the world is strange. The world is different. And we're not a part of this world. So he continues his message. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob and all the families of the house of Israel. The prophet Jeremiah uses the old name and the new name. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob. Jacob, remember, is his name prior to his What's the word I'm looking for? Transformation. He's the heel catcher and the supplanter. And then he says, he uses the covenant name. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Israel, and all the families of the house of Israel. That covenant name is the name, the prince of God and the promise of God. And so he says, listen carefully. And he's addressing the people. 
In verse five, he issues a challenge. He says, thus says the Lord, what injustice have your fathers found in me that they have gone far from me, have followed idols and have become idolaters. Now, listen carefully. The Lord issues a challenge. He basically begins with there has to be some sort of reason. There has to be some sort of justification. What did I do wrong? What fault? What wrong did your fathers find in me? And the question implies an emphatic negative. Here's the idea. Did God let you down? Did God prove to be unfaithful? Did God fail to keep his promises? When the Lord said to to Moses and the children of Israel, I'm going to get you out of here. Did he get them out of there? When he said, I am going to defeat your enemies, did he defeat their enemies? When he said, I'm going to make a provision for you in the wilderness, did he make a provision for you in the wilderness? And so over and over again, there is this appeal. And the appeal has certainly an application to each and every one of us. Hey, didn't God say that he would save you in Christ Jesus? Didn't he? When he said, I'll forgive you, didn't he? When he said, I'd reconcile you to the Father, didn't he? When he said, I would promise you heaven instead of hell, Did he make good on his promise? Is there one single thing that God has promised that he's failed to do? And here's the point. The departure takes place. Not by the Lord, but by the people. Has anyone ever said to you, I don't feel like God is near. I feel like God is far away. Have you ever said that? I feel like God is far away. Well, guess what? Guess who moved? Do you think God has left you? Do you think God has walked away? And so I need you to understand something. The moment that he says that, that the departure by the people leave a vacuum and that vacuum is filled with idolatry. Look what it says in verse five. They have gone far from me. They have followed idols and have become idolaters. Now, this becomes a way important verse in the message as we continue. Remember what an idol is. It's a God substitute. An idol is something that is fake, that is phony. It is synthetic. It promises you what you hope God will provide. And it always fails. Can an idol forgive your sin? Can an idol give you eternal life? Can an idol reconcile you to the Father? What can an idol really do? It can't really satisfy. And look what it says. And have become idolaters. This becomes important too. Because there is a principle in the scripture that you will become like what you follow. You will become like what you pursue. You will become like what you desire. I don't want to go to church and I don't want God and I don't want a friendship and fellowship and a relationship with God. I don't want that. Well, what do you want? I want people to like me and I want a good job and I want to have some laughs. Really? Yeah, I don't want to be serious all the time. (laughs) Then become a Christian. Because few people are as serious as Christians. No, but think about this for just a moment. 
What does the idolater want to do? You will become like what you follow. You will become like what you pursue. You will become like what you desire. In verse 6, he says, Neither did they say, Where's the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and shadow of death, through a land that no one crossed and and where no one dwelt. So he, he brings something up. Neither did they say, where is the Lord? In other words, he brings up the past. And when he brings up the past, he gives a brief but vivid picture of the wilderness wanderings. And when we think of the wilderness, of course, we think of a place where there's an absence of life. But probably here it means an absence of human settlement. And he says, through a land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and the shadow of death. And it literally does say shadow of death. Some translations have it deep darkness. The point being, I was with you and walked with you. Do you remember in the Old Testament, there was a pillar of smoke by day. And remember, there was a pillar of fire by night. What did that mean when you saw the smoke? Or the cloud and the fire. It was direction. It was direction. It was direction. If I tell you to go, you can go. If I tell you to stop, you should stop. If I say go to the left, go to the left. If I say go to the right, go to the right. And so he's basically saying, I led you. Neither did they say, where is the Lord? They didn't have to say, where is the Lord? Who's leading us? Who's guiding us? Who's directing us? How can we be sure that we're going in the right direction? How can we be sure that we know what we're doing? And he talks about deserts, pits, and through the shadow of death. What does he mean by that? It means through the place That you fear the most. It's through the thing that could kill you. It's through that thing which causes you deep concern. And he says, I need you to remember the past. And then in verse 7, he says, I brought you into a bountiful country to eat its fruit and its goodness. But when you entered, you defiled my land and you made my heritage an abomination. The Hebrew reads, I brought you. Into the land, Carmel. There's a place in Israel called Carmel. It's Mount Carmel, and it's it's a beautiful place with with orchards and fruit. And he's using this to describe the whole country. This is a place that is beautiful. It's a place of gardens and orchards. So how did the people defile the land. The way they defiled the land was by introducing idolatry. In other words, this was a place that was set aside, separate for them, for the purpose of making a provision for them. And when you enter into a right relationship with God and Jesus Christ, 
There's a sense of purity and there's a sense of joy and there's a provision that was made. And in that sense of purity and in that sense of joy and in that sense of abundant provision, you're not supposed to introduce idolatry. This is why in the New Testament, the writers say, keep yourself from idols. Keep yourself pure. Keep yourself clean. The Lord created the whole earth and he set aside this land for a specific task and a specific function. In this land, the Lord prepared a special place of revelation of himself, human beings and human nature. Does it have a way of cheapening and debasing and degrading and defiling the goodness of God? And so he says, I I brought you into a land and I brought you into the land with an awesome and abundant provision. I want you to remember the past. I want you to remember the provision. I want you to remember everything that I provided for you. And why is this important? And let me help you understand it's because God is good. God is a good God. The purposes of God are good. The purposes of God are decent. The purposes of God are right. And so in verse 8 it says, the priests did not say, where's the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. And the rulers also transgressed against me and the prophets prophesied by Baal and they walked after things that don't profit. In other words, here's part of the thing of the apostasy and the idolatry and the wickedness that becomes introduced. One of the tragic reasons the people forsook the Lord was a massive failure on the part of their spiritual leaders. And so when the when it says the priests did not say, where is the Lord? Remember what the priests were Their Their job was to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people and to instruct the people in the things of God. Right. And so when the people introduce idolatry. When the people introduce compromise, when the people begin to. Deal with God in an apathetic and an indifferent way. Part of the, the job of the priest was to say, where's the Lord in all of this? And you see, that often happens when you're hanging out with Christians and a Christian might see you doing something stupid or weird or, or just not even right. And, and, and they might say to you, well, where, where's God in all of this? How does Jesus fit in? To what you're watching. How does Jesus fit into what you're doing? How does Jesus fit into this plan? How does Jesus fit into this direction? How does Jesus fit into this thing that you find yourself doing? Where is Jesus in in this scam or this scheme? Where is Jesus in this trip? Where is Jesus in this job? Where is Jesus in this friendship or relationship that you've just formed? The priests were God's temporal but spiritual leaders. Those who handled the law were probably the scribe. And those who handled the law did not know me. As a matter of fact, if you turn over to chapter 8, verse 8, just really quickly, it says, How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? Look, the false pen of the scribe certainly works falsehood. In other words, here... 
Those who handle the law are probably the scribes because their job was to study the law. And their job was to interpret the law. And their job was to study and interpret the law and then help people apply it to their life. It's sort of like my job. My job is to help you read the Bible. By the way, me reading the Bible to you can never serve as a satisfying provision. When I'm reading the Bible to you, if this is the only time you hear the Bible, you're in trouble. I'm not here to just simply read the Bible to you. I'm here to encourage you. Open up your Bible. Do it every day. Read it for yourself. But part of what I'm supposed to do as I'm opening up the Bible and interpreting the Bible and then applying it to the to your life. This is part of what the, the, the scribes were tasked with doing. They were tasked with studying the Holy Scriptures. Now, I, I want you to understand God's criticism here. They're tasked with opening up the Bible, reading the Bible, teaching the Bible, interpreting the Bible, applying the Bible. But they don't have any desire to know God. Is it possible that you could be in ministry? And even be a Bible teacher? And have no desire whatsoever to know God? I think it is possible. And I think it's probably the big tragedy of our generation. That many people know the Bible, but they don't know the Lord. And sometimes you get seduced and sometimes you make a mistake because you sit there and you say, this person knows the Bible. And if this person knows the Bible, you would think that they know the Lord. And here's the strange irony. Does handling holy things make you holy? No. And so that's the crisis of leadership. The rulers also transgressed against me here. This is one of those strange places where the the word translated ruler is in the Hebrew shepherds. As a matter of fact, in the old King James, it, it, it translates this pastors. I think it means rulers in the sense that the, not, not the pastor who's the head of a church or a shepherd who just simply, you know, orchestrates and organizes the flock. Here it becomes a metaphor for the rulers of Judah whose job it was the community leaders, the family leaders, the, 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 the shepherd who was to shepherd his family, the shepherd who was to shepherd the community, the shepherd who was to, to, to shepherd the province and the people, the king. That's what I think it really means here. It's a reference to the temporary rulers of Israel they transgressed against me. In other words, the fathers would say, do as I say and not as I. Yeah, you know that line. Look, I'm your dad. You're not to follow my example. You're to do what I tell you to do. See, I, I think you know the whole point. The whole point becomes... People may not believe everything you say, but they will believe everything you do. 
And so the rulers said, you know, I think that there's such a thing as right and wrong. And I think that there's such a thing as good and evil, but it doesn't really apply to me. And the prophets, look what it says, prophesied by Baal. I'm going to suggest to you that the prophets here are probably professional temple employees. That these are people who, like the priests and who, like the scribes, are self-proclaimed prophets who pretend to speak for God, but they are, in fact, the mouthpieces of Baal. Imagine here... Here's where you go. Yeah, I think I want a job. What do you think you'd like your job to be? I think I'd like to be a prophet of God. So here's what you'd like to do. You'd like to speak for God. Yeah, it seems like such a cushy job. I could go in the ministry and people could ask me questions. I could speak for God. What a great job. And it, I only have to work one day a week. I can only work on Sundays for one hour. What a great job. This is important. The point that he's making is that these so-called prophets are pretenders. They don't really speak for God. They were false messengers. And because they're false messengers, they have a false message. But they frequently challenge the true prophet and and the true prophet's message, and the true prophet's authority. And so this is going to be very, very important, particularly as we see the circumstances unfold, because Jeremiah is going to say, there's something terribly wrong here. And the false prophets will say, you're fine. No, sin is a deep problem. And, you know, people don't really want to hear about sin. People don't want to hear about sin because when you bring up sin, they feel like they're on a downer. They want to hear about things that will make them happy and things that will make them feel good. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting for a moment that there isn't promises and that there isn't encouragement. But sometimes you have to hear the bad news before you can hear the good news. Desperate shadows. Fall on the family and the church and the land where spiritual leadership has been separated from the real God of the Bible. And so there was a crisis. People had forsaken God in the family and they had forsaken God in the assembly and they had forsaken God in the community. And by the way, the word Baal has multiple meanings depending on the context. In the ancient Canaanite belief system, it was believed that Baal was the rain god. Or the, the, Baal was the person who would provide rain. And see, in their way of thinking, the ground was like the female and the rain would come and inseminate the ground. And the ground would produce the crops and there would be a provision for the people. And so in their way of thinking, Baal was the god who made the grass grow and the trees grow and the fruit grow germinate and the Old Testament writers go into great detail about the abominations of Baal worship in Numbers chapter 25 uh, verses 1 through 3 and also in Hosea chapter 2 but, but think about this for just a moment this idolatry causes them to be idolaters 
They walk after worthless things in verse 5. They do those things which have no profit in verse 8. And so the prophet Jeremiah calls the people to remember. He says, I want you to remember your past. I want you to remember redemption. I want you to remember how you were purchased out of slavery. He calls the people. I want you to remember the provision that God made for you in the most desperate of circumstances. And and I want you to think about this for for a moment. Surely if the people will, will remember the slavery that they used to experience, if they'll remember the hardships that they used to bear, if they remember the the loneliness and the wickedness and the stupidity of their life apart from God and apart from Christ, surely this would be sufficient to motivate them to turn. Right? You would think, hey, end of the message. He's right. How stupid is it to go back to the world, to go back to the emptiness, to go back to the darkness, to go back to the fear, to go back to all of the things that God delivered me from? This, hey, I'm motivated to repent. Disobeying God, not a good idea. Following my own path. Bad idea. And in verse 9. Therefore I will yet bring charges against you, says the Lord. And against your children's children I will bring charges. The Lord God brings the charges. And you've got to understand here, charges is a legal word. It has the full force of a heavenly indictment. You know, let me just put it to you a different way. What if your husband accuses you of something? That could be bad. What if your wife accuses you of something? That could be bad. What if the attorney general accuses you of something? Is that different from your husband or your wife accusing you of something? When the attorney general accuses you of something, you could go on trial. You could have your limits, your freedoms limited. Did you hear that Barry Bonds was convicted today on some of the uh, on a, the, the charge of obstruction of justice? Now, here's Barry Bonds, one of the great players of all time. He is charged. He is indicted. There is a trial. He is found guilty of one of the charges. What do you suppose happens when you're found guilty of a charge? You could go to jail. Now, it's bad if the district attorney brings a charge against you. It's, it's bad if the attorney general of the United States brings a charge against you. What could happen if the God of the universe says, hey, I, I'd like to serve you with this indictment. You're going to go on trial. You're, you should go weak in the knees. Your heart should begin to flutter. Your palms should begin to sweat. I've got some charges against you. Now, you have to understand something. The pleading is less emotional and more legal, but it has the full weight and authority of a trial. When Jeremiah says, yet I will bring charges against you, it seems to indicate that there were appeals that have been made earlier. Yet, therefore, I will yet bring charges against you. The implication being... I've tried to have a conversation with you about this. I've tried to informally bring this to your attention. I've tried to settle this out of court, so to speak. 
But things don't seem to be working the way that I, I had hoped. All previous appeals seems to have been neglected or ignored. Have you ever heard a wife say to her husband, unless you stop drinking, unless you stop drugging, unless you stop gambling, I'm going to leave you. Unless you stop drinking and unless you stop drugging and unless you stop gambling, I'm going to leave you. And she says that the first year and she says that the second year and she says that the third year and she says that the fourth year and she says that the fifth year and she says that the sixth year. And then all of a sudden on the seventh year, she leaves him. And the husband says, I can't believe she left me. It came as such a shock. It was such a surprise. This came out of nowhere. Really? The issue probably isn't what took her seven years. It's how could she possibly have put up with you for this amount of time? Jeremiah says the consequences aren't going to just be to you. It's going to be to you and your children. And by the way, when the judgment will come from the east and the city will be destroyed and the family will be taken captive and they will be marched into captivity. Is it just going to have an effect on that generation or is it going to have an effect on generations to come? The answer is it's going to have an effect on generations to come. And then in verse 10, it says for for pass beyond the coasts of Cyprus and see and send to Kedar and consider diligently and see if there's been such a thing. OK, here's part of what's taking place in verse 10. The children of Israel were called on to search the world and see if any people had the same sins, more sins, worse sins. Jeremiah is using an idiom. For pass beyond the coast of Cyprus and see, send to Kedar. By the way, here the coast of Cyprus refers to the island of Cyprus, the adjacent islands that were connected to the, the mainland. And Kedar is the region that was occupied by an Arab tribe to the east of Jerusalem and Judea. It's his way of saying, go as far west as you can possibly go. Go as far east as you can possibly go. No matter how far you go to the west, no matter how far you go to the east, no matter which countries you incorporate and which people you see, I want you to point out a group of people who are worse than you. <laughs> and then he, the Lord says in verse 11, has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods, but my people have changed their glory. In other words, here's the point that he's making. Even these pagan nations, even these pagan, wicked nations, the pagan, wicked nations remain loyal to their pagan, worthless gods. And by the way, when he says which are not gods, he's saying these pagan nations worship these pagan gods. They're not even real, but at least they remain Loyal to their gods that aren't even real. You know what this reminds me of? It's like being a sports fan, right? I don't care if they're 1 in 14. They're my team. By the way, if you are a Minnesota Vikings fan, if you are a 
Pittsburgh Steelers fan, if you are this fan or that fan, if you root for this team or that team, good times, bad times, winning seasons, losing seasons, are there fans who remain loyal to their team no matter how stinky the team is? Are there Cubs fans to, to this very day? There are people, no matter how loser the team is, they're going to root for that team. And God is saying, look, as a nation, and the word is goy, it may, can mean a people group or a language group. But here's the whole point. If ever there was a reason, if ever there was a reason, if ever there was a reason for a people to change their loyalty and affection and trust the true and the living God... The God of Israel is that God. If you lived in Greece, if you lived in Rome, if you lived in Spain, if you lived in Babylon, if you lived in India, if you lived in China, if you lived wherever it is that you happen to live and you follow whatever God that you happen to follow, and all of a sudden you stumble on the God of Israel. Tell me about the God of Israel. He'll deliver you from slavery. He'll forgive your sin. He'll fill your heart with joy. And he'll make an awesome and abundant provision for you. Really? What does your God do for you? Well, not, not anything, really. And he says in verse 12, Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. Jeremiah is calling on nature to look with surprise, to be horribly afraid, to be utterly desolate. Literally, it says in the original language, be exceedingly dried up, hence desolate. So in the history of humanity, there's never been anything like it, what the Lord is basically saying. This is one of the reasons why when people turn from Jesus, it's such a shock and a surprise. You know, I used to be a Christian, really. But I'm not a Christian anymore. Really? Why is that? I tried Christianity, but it didn't work for me. What do you mean? Well, you know, I tried to be a Christian, but then something horrible and terrible happened to my wife, to my child. Something horrible and terrible happened. I lost my job. Something horrible and terrible happened. I got a disease. Something horrible and terrible happened. I was disappointed. Something horrible and terrible happened. I met a person who said that they were a Christian and they, they robbed me and they took me of my life savings. And so you abandoned Christ. Right. So... Because this horrible, terrible thing has happened to you, that means that Jesus Christ is no longer Savior. He's no longer the Lord. He no longer forgives your sins. He no longer reconciles you to the Father. He no longer gives you the promise of eternal life. That somehow, some way, based on whatever tragic thing that you happen to be dealing with, God ceases to be God. Jesus ceases to be Jesus. His life and His love and His sacrifice and His resurrection no longer mean anything. That's right. Really? So you forsook the Lord. Yeah, so I forsook the Lord. And so God has delivered them. God has given 
them promises. God has made good on his promises and the people have forsaken him. And look at what it says in verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What I'm going to draw to your attention might come as a surprise to you. Look at verse 13 again. I want you to look at the first three words. Read it out loud. For my people. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. These are my people. This, who's, who's speaking? It's God. It's the Lord. The Lord is speaking. And he says, these are my people. This is a personal, warm, revealing word. In our own culture and society, we use the term my peeps. This is part of my family. These are my peeps. These are my people. This is my family. The children of Israel are ungrateful and they are unkind and they are sinful and they are selfish and they are apostate. And God says, they're my people. Isn't that crazy? Don't you think that's amazing? The very fact that he even calls them my people should cause your heart to be filled with joy and hope, even in the rebuke. He accuses Judea of forsaking him, the source of true love and true peace and true joy and true hope and true forgiveness. When a person forsakes God, they cut themselves off from the true source of hope and the true source of joy and the true source of life and the true source of forgiveness and the true source of eternal life. People who live in a desert, they understand the value of water. And when you visit Israel, you begin to understand how important water is. And in the ancient world, you can't visit a single place in Israel without looking at the carved giant cisterns that are everywhere. Cistern water, by the way, is flat and tasteless. It is easily contaminated. It has growth and mold and scum. And cisterns would become cracked. And the water that's in there is stale and lifeless and disgusting. Now imagine you're standing at a road. And as you stand at the road, there's a sign and the sign says, go in this direction. And there is an empty, broken pool with no water in it. But at the bottom, there is scum and mud and polluted water and animal excrement. And then the other sign says, in this direction is clean, pure, wholesome water. And imagine the person says, I think I'm going to go to the scummy empty pool. That's where I'm going to go to satisfy my thirst. Does that make sense to you? 
That's the indictment. The people of Judah have abandoned the true and the living God for something that's not real. It's a God substitute. He uses the term broken cistern that holds no water. And what's interesting is they've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewn themselves. Look at that. This is something man-made. This is something that they fabricated. This is something that they invented. It's something that they fabricated and invented, and it doesn't even Work. And the verse continues the thought from verse five. You are what you worship. But you also are what you drink. Or don't drink. You become like what you pursue. And if what you pursue is empty and if it's meaningless and if it's valueless and if it's worthless, then you become empty and you become meaningless and you become worthless. That's the picture that that Jeremiah is painting. A thirsty person turns to an empty cistern. I want to ask you a question. Imagine the thirsty person winds up at the empty pool. And when he winds up at the empty pool, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you think he remains thirsty? I think that's safe to say. Would you also say it's safe to say that he even becomes more thirsty? Have you ever wanted to drink really, really bad? I mean, really bad. Imagine someone gives you an empty plastic bottle. Does that satisfy your thirst? Does it make the thirst go away? Or does it only mock you and remind you of your condition? That's what I'm going to suggest to you. It's a broken cistern. It holds the promise of water. But it's worse than the promise of water. A person who turns to an empty cistern doesn't just simply remain thirsty. I'm going to suggest to you that they become more thirsty. And a person who turns to an empty cistern doesn't simply remain thirsty, but they begin to experience a greater thirst. And then their life becomes marked by one great big word. Disappointment. The religious forms of idolatry. The man-made religions, they may look impressive, they might be technologically clever, but they're lacking the true and the living spirit of God. This is the reality of every single man-made religion. It will never forgive you. It will never cleanse you. It will never make the guilt go away. It will never make the emptiness go away. And it will never make hope spring eternal. And so what are the bitter results of forsaking the Lord? Look at verses 14 through 19. Is Israel a servant? Is he a home-born slave? Why is he plundered? Remember, bond slaves produce slaves. A slave born to a bondwoman gets treated a little bit better than a a slave that's purchased because there's blood. But the question invites a negative answer. Is Israel a servant? No. Israel is a son. I would even go further. Jeremiah 31.20. Israel is God's darling child. Israel became a slave in Egypt. God redeemed them from slavery. 
Christians were slaves in the world. Jesus purchased us out of the marketplace of sin by the sacrifice of Jesus. He says, why is he plunder? Hosea and Jeremiah place a special emphasis. Why is he plundered? The idea being, how do you explain a person who is a child who is free? How do you explain that they walk like a slave and they talk like a slave and they act like a slave? How do you explain that? Paul, you are a slave to whatever you must do. Are you a slave to sin or are you a slave to righteousness? In verse 15, the young lions roared at him and growled. They made his land waste. His cities are burned without habitation. I suggest that the young lions probably are an illustration of the Assyrians to the north, maybe even the Babylonians to the east. The Assyrians overwhelmed and overran the northern kingdom in 722. They laid waste to the land. They burned the cities in northern Israel. They literally um, wiped it out and removed the population. And then they brought in populations from other parts of their kingdom. The young lions roared. Question. Do lions go, Tell me something. Are you a slave or are you a son? Do, do lions ask that kind of a question? Will they eat you if you're a slave? Will they eat you if you're a son? Lions don't care if you're a slave or a son. All they want to do is kill you and eat you. The point? When you forsake the Lord, you get put into unspeakable danger. By the way, you might be thinking, I'll play games with sin. It won't be that big of a deal. Is it a big deal? That's exactly right. In verse 16, it says, also the people of Noth and Tapanes have broken the crown of your head. The people of Noth are the people who live near modern Cairo, Egypt. And Tapanes, for many scholars, they think it's Thebes, but this is the, the citadel or the city that was at the mouth of, of Egypt that literally commands the approach to Palestine. They have broken the crown of your head. Some scholars mean that that means that they've made your king impotent or ineffective. And in verse 17, it says, have you not brought this on yourself in that you have forsaken the Lord your God when he led you in the way? Here's the idea. The children of Israel have brought this on themselves because they've forsaken the Lord, possibly the way of the wilderness, more likely the way of righteousness. Verse 18. And now why take the road to Egypt to drink the waters of Sihor? Now, again, imagine the, the fork in the, mo, the road. To the south is Egypt in the Nile River. Sihor is the Hebrew word Dark. I was born in New Orleans and spent my summers there. The Mississippi River is called the Muddy Mississippi for good reason. How many people do you think go to the Muddy Mississippi at the mouth of the Delta and take water and they scoop it up and they drink the muddy water? Would you? That would be stupid, huh? Imagine you go to a river 
and it's dark, muddy brown. And you are you going to go, hmm, that's what I'm going to drink. Or why take the road to Assyria to drink the waters of the river? The river is a Hebrew expression, which means the Euphrates River. And here's the point. If you go to the east. There is a muddy river. If you go to the south, there is a muddy river. In verse 19, it says your own wickedness will correct you. Your backslidings will rebuke you. Know, therefore, and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God. And the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord of hosts. The the way of the transgressor is hard. The very act of forsaking the Lord will bring its own calamity. Your own wickedness will correct you. In other words, part of the point that God is making is the reality that when we rebel against God and when we forsake God and when we embrace wickedness, sometimes our own wickedness will find us out. One of the great examples is imagine a mother says to her child, don't climb that tree. Why? You could fall from the tree and you could break your leg. So the child, not anyone here, climbs the tree, falls from the tree, breaks their leg. Is God punishing them? Or is their own wickedness and their own rebellion and their own disobedience, are they experiencing the fruit of their own wickedness and their own rebellion and their own disobedience? By the way, if a child climbs a tree, falls from the tree and breaks their leg, is it a good idea to drag them into the house and beat them within an inch of their life? I see some of you saying yes, and I see some of you saying no. Let me encourage you that probably the right answer is no, that the consequences of their rebellion and disobedience are probably plenty. That's the point. When a person sows what they reap, when they understand that evil brings evil, when they understand that God punishes evil... No wonder the Lord says, you have forsaken the Lord your God. Look what it says. And your backslidings will rebuke you. You know, here the word backslidings, it carries within it the idea That our own sin carries the seed of our own judgment and that sometimes that will result in discipline or chastisement. But remember that that discipline and chastisement is supposed to bring you to a place where you go. I'm ready to turn from my sin. I'm ready to not do this anymore. I'm ready to not do this anymore. I'm ready to walk away from this. I'm ready to abandon it. And I'm ready to return to God. Now you would think that bringing up the past and bringing up the promises and bringing up the provision and bringing up the consequences of sin, that would be plenty to motivate you to repent, right? We can end the sermon right here, right? But Jeremiah can't end the sermon right here. Because they still are 
trusting the resources of Egypt. They're still trusting the resources of Assyria. They, they, they understand and they think that these are dependable sources of help in times of distress. So they're not yet willing to trust the Lord to be faithful and sufficient. If I have Jesus only, I'm safe for eternity. If I have everything else without him, I am lost. Jeremiah wants to bring the people to that point. Don't you understand that without the true and living God, you're in deep, deep kimchi. Kimchi is Korean cabbage, by the way, that's buried in the ground and left to rot. There's so much more, but we have to stop. Heavenly Father, we are stopping in the middle of the sermon. Lord, we will wait till next week to hear the rest of Jeremiah's message. But Lord, again, we pray that if you're speaking to us, if there's something in our heart, if there's something in our life, if there's something evil, if there's something wicked, if there's something not honoring or pleasing to you, Lord, we pray that we could get rid of it. And Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for Jesus. We thank, thank you that in Jesus we have life and love and hope. We have a reward. We can make it with Jesus and we can't make it without him. And so, Lord, we commit this time to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.